Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is September 10th, 2018, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is, I Fought the Law and the Law One, But Would It Matter If I Had a Resident? And our guest skeptic is Dr. Justin Morgenstern. Justin, as you know, is an emergency physician and the director of simulation education at Markham Stouffville Hospital in Ontario. He's also the creator of the FOMED project called First 10 EM. Welcome back to the SGM, Justin. It's great to be back, Ken. Great to see you as always. And actually, it is the fact that you are back because you just got back from this epic adventure. Yeah, you know, I might be a little rusty on all this EBM stuff because I just got back from a three-week family vacation in Kenya, but it's totally worth being rusty because there's nothing quite like watching a herd of hundreds of elephants silently wait, make their way across the savanna. It, j- it just takes your breath away. <sighs> Physician wellness. And I'm sure a guy like you with your eye had your camera out and took a ton of pictures. So when can we see them? Yeah, it's going to take me a while to get through them. I took, I think, more than 5,000 photos. So once I get around to sorting those, I can get them up. Uh, they'll be on my website, justinmorgenstern.com. Well, you're back. Let's get ready to go with an S-Gem hop. So that's a great way to shake off those EBM cobwebs. Give us a case. All right. So you're giving an introductory lecture on evidence-based medicine to the incoming class of residents, and you've just after you finish, you notice some excited chatter at the back of the room. Thinking that you've found some of those EBM keeners or gunners, you wander over to join the group, but you find yourself in a heated discussion. One of the senior residents was recently named in a lawsuit, and the junior residents are worried. How likely are they to be sued? How can they prevent such a harrowing event? The residents turn to you and all your expertise, hoping that you can provide some insight onto this topic. Isn't it amazing? The the easiest way to make a colleague go pale and ashen is either to say, remember that patient you saw last night? Or bring up a medical legal case. Well, unfortunately, physicians are not perfect, me included. <laughs> mistakes are made occasionally, and those mistakes can harm our patients. Yeah, and, and medical care provided by trainees probably involves some added risks. In an internal medicine setting, problems with handoffs, teamwork, and lack of supervision were identified as issues in trainee malpractice cases. Well, to get ready for this podcast, I reached out to our national organization called the Canadian Medical Protection Association, or the CMPA. And the CMPA has approximately 97,000 members and represents about 95% of Canadian physicians. And there are about 10,000 files opened every year with 38% involving payouts. Now, only 8% of cases end up in court. And this one surprised me, but there's been a 5% decrease in cases over the last decade. And when I was speaking to CMPA, they said they have a research study going on right now that they hope to publish next year. And so, of course, me being me said, well, when you get it published, let me know because we can do a show on the SGEM. But the reason I'm pointing this out is because there's a difference between Canada and the United States, particularly in our medical legal environment. It is much more litigious system south of the border. And the paper we're going to be talking about today comes out of the U.S. So Justin, give us the clinical question. So this paper asks, what are some key factors in malpractice claims against trainees, and how do those compare to malpractice cases that don't involve trainees? And give us the reference. 
So this is Gurley et al. Comparison of emergency medicine malpractice cases involving residents to non-resident cases. And because it's an SGN hop, of course, it's an AEM September 2018. Oh, yeah. It's hot off the press. All right, let's run through the PICO. What's the population? So they looked at the Comparative Benchmarking System Database, which is a large database of malpractice claims covering more than 400 hospitals and more than 165,000 physicians. And what was the intervention? So they looked at malpractice claims involving trainees or residents in an emergency department setting over a three-year period from 2009 to 2012, which were actually the exact same years that I was in residency. Uh-oh. So what was the comparison? So they looked at malpractice claims not involving trainees over the same time period. And they had multiple outcomes. So let's run through those outcomes. So they looked through the coded information here, uh, covering a number of different domains. They looked at the average payment. They looked at case severity. Yeah. And when it came severity, they, they categorized them into low, medium, high, or where death was only involved. They looked at the allegation category. And that included diagnosis-related, medical treatment, surgical treatment, medication-related, or others. They looked whether a procedure was involved. And that was a yes-no thing. So was there a procedure? Yes. Or no, there wasn't a procedure. And if it was a yes, what was the procedure? They looked at the final diagnosis. Yeah, and they put it into categories like, was this cardiac-related, orthopedic-related? And then maybe most importantly, they looked at the contributing factors. Yeah, things like communication, clinical judgment, documentation, those sorts of things. Well, Justin, you mentioned earlier, this is an SGEM hot off the press, and this is the first one for season number seven. And of course, we have the lead author here ready to give her conclusions to the study and talk nerdy to us. So Dr. Kirsten Gurley is a clinical instructor at Harvard Medical School She's also an attending emergency physician and assistant QI director in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Welcome to the SGEM, Kirsten. Thanks for having me, Ken. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Kirsten, tell us, what got you interested in this topic? Hopefully it wasn't getting sued as a resident. Fortunately, this is not the case. Um, my interest stemmed after, as a resident, I attended this educational program which was put on by both the residency and CRICO, who's the malpractice insurance company for the Harvard hospitals and, and other hospitals. And they basically had people from CRICO come teach us as residents. In that conference, we became made aware of this large comparative benchmark system or CBS database that did have approximately one third of all malpractice data in the United States. And my mentor program director at the time, Dr. Rosen, and I were talking and really recognized the potential power of looking at such a large database and set up a collaboration with CRICO at that time. And how did that residency education day go? Was, it, was there a lot of excitement? Was there a lot of anxiety You know, in this topic area? How was it received? I think most residents, at least for myself and my friends that I was sitting with, it was really eye-opening. So... It was somewhat subdued initially as we're learning what the risks really were um, and that there were risks. And a lot of us had no idea. And I think that was people's overall initial impression. And then as the day went on and we became more comfortable speaking with the CRICO participants and the lawyer, I think it was a really positive experience. And we, we came out of it armed with a little more information as to uh, what to expect and what, what was out there. 
Well, you didn't just come out with what to expect and what was out there. You came out with a research project. So can you give us the conclusions to your paper? Yes. Uh, so the conclusions were that overall case profiles in both attending physician or resident and non-resident cases are very similar and that the contributing factors are much the same in both cases. That said, there are higher total incurred losses in non-resident cases. There are higher severity scores in resident cases. Um, and in addition, the cases involving residents are more likely to involve certain technical skills, specifically vascular access and spinal procedures. And these, we think, may have important implications regarding supervision of residents. The clinical judgment, communication, and documentation are the most prevalent contributing factors in all cases, both involving resident and non-resident cases, and those we identified as targets for risk reduction strategies. Now, you wanted to make another comment besides your just conclusions before we went on. Well, I, I wanted to clarify that this is a national database, so there are different malpractice rules in each state in the United States. Some states are more often to, likely to sue the hospital, others the attending, others the resident, and this varies. So this may have had some influence on the dollar amounts. Um, we do think there's a lot of potential reasons for that. Okay. So Justin, let's get you back in here and go through the quality checklist for observational studies. The first question, did this study address a clearly focused issue? Yes, it did, Ken. Did they use appropriate methods to answer their question? Yes. Was the cohort recruited in an acceptable way? Yes. Was the exposure accurately measured to minimize bias? Uh, yes. Was the outcome accurately measured to minimize bias? So unsure here, uh, Ken, the only outcome data that we have is, what, is what's reported in the database, and there's no way to know how accurate the database is or whether it addressed all the most important factors. The authors, have they identified all important confounding factors? Again, I was unsure. The decision to sue is pretty complex, and it doesn't necessarily represent the care that's provided. Patients may use different criteria when deciding to sue trainees than they do when they're deciding to uh, sue a staff physician, and that could be a significant confounder. Was the follow-up of subjects complete enough? Yes. How precise are the results? Uh, unsure. Do you believe the results? Yes, I do. Can the results be applied to the local population? Again, unsure. Malpractice systems do vary significantly from country to country. And do the results fit with other available evidence? I give this one an unsure as well. All right, let's run through the key results. There were 845 malpractice cases that were identified, and 13% of them, that's 113, involved a resident. In 45 cases, or 40%, the resident was the only person named. The average losses were just over $50,000 in resident cases and over $150,000 for non-resident cases. And a majority of cases were high injury severity, which included death, permanent, grave, permanent major, or permanent significant injuries. The majority of these cases were also for a failure, a delay, or a missed diagnosis. And a procedure was involved in almost about one-third of cases. Looking at the final diagnoses, uh, resident cases had more cardiac diagnoses, while non-resident cases had more orthopedic diagnoses. And clinical judgment was thought to be involved in about three-quarters of the cases. Now, I'll put a table in the show notes to highlight some of these key results, but I'd like to get to talking nerdy. So, Kirsten, 
Will you talk nerdy to me? Sure thing. <laughs> All right. So let's ask you some nerdy questions. Justin, you have the first one. Yeah, so let's ease into things, which is a comment about association versus causation. This is a cohort study that compares cases involving residents to cases that don't involve residents, but no causation can be drawn from that type of, of study. Residents weren't randomly assigned to work or not work a shift and then to see whether there was a malpractice claim. This is true. Yeah, we cannot draw causation, but can only report the association that we found. See, we started with an easy question. It's going to get more and more nerdy from here. Okay, number two, other confounders. Residents tend to work in academic centers and might see different types of case loads than staff physicians. Might the type of patient seen or hospital environment have acted as a confounder to this research? Yes, I do think this is a potential confounder. So residents could certainly see a potentially different caseload especially in uh, academic, usually tertiary care centers. They're really the data that we have is insurance company data, so it's pre-codified data. And because of that, we can't look at the details of each specific case. For example, the department could be crazy at the time of the event, the physician's caseload and the acuity in the apartment could vary. And we don't know exactly what was going on during any of these cases, nor do we know the exact role the resident or attending physician had in each case. These are all deep dives that we just can't take based on the type of data that we have. I do think the limitation is partially offset by our ability to look at a large HIPAA compliant data set in this unique way, especially about a topic that EM residents are not aware of. So our next question was about that database itself. So you use the Controlled Risk Insurance Company, the Strategies Division Comparative Benchmarking System. Now, while it's the largest database of its nature, it only does represent about one third of malpractice cases across the United States. Do you know, has the reliability of the data in this database ever been measured? So the, the only one third uh, <laughs> tells me you're in Canada. <laughs> That's for the United States. For, that's, a, that's a pretty large number for us in terms of the number of insurance companies and different hospital systems that we have here. But I don't know if the reliability of the data in the database has ever been formally measured. It is an industry standard. So it is case data that is codified in such a way that it adheres to malpractice industry standards. How exactly they developed that as a standard and what reliability studies they did to do so, uh, I do not know. Justin, I'm just impressed that you got through that controlled risk insurance company strategies and didn't call it CRICO. There's a reason you have me on the show, Ken. Yeah, I know. You're not Australian. <laughs> All right. Number four, external validity. Malpractice settings vary significantly between countries. And we've actually tried to point that out a few times during this show. Um, even between states, it can be different. How generalizable do you think these results are and to what practice environment? Well, I suspect that about 10 to 15 percent of U.S. cases will name a resident no matter where you are regionally. That does play out in the data set. Our data is from all over the country. I think there could be variation from state to state and certainly from country to country after hearing the Canadian rates of malpractice and how many go to uh, go to court. So I do think there definitely could be variation there. But the bottom line is I think the resident is at risk and certain procedures should be carefully supervised, that these may create a liability. I think that um, high-risk cases like cardiac cases 
may be more common in places where residents are working at a big academic center, but I don't know that for sure based on the data. Um, and in general, I think the overarching message is the resident risk profile is really similar to that of attendings and that that does not change when you move from being a resident to an attending physician. All right. Our next question is about the severity scale used here. Severity outcomes were rated using something called the NAIC severity scale. I'm not familiar with that one. So can you tell us what is the NAIC severity scale and has it ever been validated? Yes. Uh, I do not know if it's been validated. What it is, is it's another industry standard. So the National Association of Insurance Commissioners developed a severity scale many years ago that is used across all specialties within the at least United States insurance medical malpractice world. It really is a way to specifically categorize injury severity for each case. So all cases in the database are assigned a very specific severity score down to the point where they're even counting fingers and toes. So it's very specific definitions. All right. Well, let's get into multiple comparisons. This is our nerdy point number six. You had a large number of comparisons made in this study, and I would expect some differences to be found by chance alone. Were any statistical adjustments made for the multiple comparisons to investigate this possibility? I did not make statistical adjustments between the comparisons as it was an observational study and kind of beyond the scope of the project and also beyond the scope of my abilities as a resident to analyze the data. That's fine. I mean, uh, it, it is one of the things that we look at when we're comparing multiple things. You can obviously, of course, if you're comparing multiple things, you can, by chance alone, end up with, oh, this is statistically significant. So I get that. On a similarly nerdy point, point number seven is about fragility. And we just wanted to make a comment about fragility. So some of the statistical differences here could just be due to the small number of observed events. An example would be that vascular procedures were statistically more common in cases with residents, about 3%, as compared to non-resident cases where it was only 0.1%. However, these numbers are very small, three total cases with residents as compared to just one total case. So it would only take a couple of extra cases in order to change the result. So our conclusion looking at that was that we should be cautious about over-interpreting these observations. I agree with your conclusion. The total number of malpractice cases related to specific procedures is very small as was the number of cases overall that involved residents. So I do think the more robust conclusion that we can reach is that overall risk profiles are similar between residents and attending physicians and that both are at risk. All right, I think we hit the height of nerdiness with the fragility question. So I'm gonna to move to the money question, $100,000. The average payment was $100,000 lower if a resident was named. And that's a very interesting finding. Some might interpret that as a resident being protective against larger payments. Others might say that residents are worth $100,000. Personally, I think they're priceless and I think they're invaluable to have on shift. And I always enjoy the shift more when I have trainees. What's your hypothesis? Do you have some kind of explanation for this observation? Well, I'd like to think that having a resident is protective. I too find them invaluable, but we don't know the true cause of the lower average incurred losses. As before, we couldn't dive into each specific case and find out why the overall payout was less. But again, I do like to think that the resident could be protective. Do you have any plans to look into this further? We are planning on 
looking across specialties. So we're planning on doing a similar analysis in other high-risk specialties within medicine. And we could certainly compare whether or not the resident appears to be protective or the payouts are lower in those cases as well. All right. Next, we get into the point that is what makes malpractice so frustrating to me as a practicing clinician. It's law versus medicine. And it's really important to make a distinction that between being sued, which is what is being measured here, and an actual error occurring. Being sued doesn't mean that you did anything wrong. It'd be really interesting to take these cases and have them reviewed by peers and see how many they would identify as having fallen below the standard of care. Absolutely. I think that would be an important distinction to make. As we can't get that granular level of data in this data set, we are working on other several other QA projects to look at error in emergency medicine. However, we are unable to deep dive into the granular data on these cases. All right, that's nine, but we have 10 nerdy questions for you, but it's an easy one. It's a big open-ended question. Is there anything else you'd like to tell the SGEMers about your study or about being sued? I think the most important thing to focus on is that there is a risk of being sued for both resident and attending physicians, that that's a real risk and that the overall case profiles are similar in both cohorts, that patient safety efforts should really encompass the entire care team and focus on clinical judgment, communication, and documentation. I think increased supervision of residents during procedures has the potential to reduce risk and, frankly, can't be a bad idea. All right, Justin, comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. We agreed that there were larger average losses when residents are not involved. While there were some statistical differences uh, reported for some observations, we were skeptical and cautioned against overinterpretation. This was due to the small numbers involved, multiple comparisons, and the fragility of some results. However, we do agree that clinical judgment, communication, and documentation are the most prevalent factors contributing to all cases. All right, give us the SGEM bottom line. Yeah, so unfortunately, you can make no mistakes and still be sued. Unless you follow my lead and move to New Zealand. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, how about a case resolution? So one of the limitations of evidence-based medicine is the lack of high-quality data. You encourage the residents to focus not on being sued, but providing great care in a kind and compassionate way. And how are you going to take this information and apply it clinically? Yeah, it's hard to clinically apply this data directly due to some of the limitations in the methodology that we discussed, and also with how much being sued will depend on your local medical legal practice environment. So what are you going to tell the resident then? I I would tell my residents that medical malpractice is very complicated. After reviewing this study, I'm still not aware of any technique that's 100% protective against lawyers. We need a lawyer vaccination. But I will continue to do my best to be kind curious and understanding with my patients and use resources like the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine to make sure that I'm constantly learning and improving in an admittedly difficult profession. Hey, SGEMers, it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner. I apologize for the audio quality. I'm currently sitting in the Las Vegas airport after participating in the amazing EM Boot Camp, and it was the Advanced Boot Camp. It's put on by Rick Bucata and Diane Birnbaumer. 
It was an amazing course. Anyways, last week's winner was Christy Cox, an EM nurse from Iowa. She knew Vapotherm was the company that patented the concept of heated, humidified, high-flow therapy via nasal cannula in 1988 after being developed for use in racehorses. Justin, what's the question this week? So our question this week is, since we are talking about medical legal issues... What was the name of the 1957 landmark legal case about informed consent? If you know the answer, then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. And as you guys know, this is an sgem hop. That means that it's your turn, sgemers. What did you think about this episode on emergency medicine malpractice cases involving residents? Tweet your comments using the hashtag SGMHOP. What questions do you have for Kirsten and her team? Ask them on the SGM blog. The best social media feedback will be published in AEM. Also, don't forget, those of you who are subscribers to AEM can have over to the AEM homepage and get CME credits for this podcast. We'll put the process on the SGM blog. Well, thank you, Kirsten, for coming on the SGEM and talking about being sued. Thank you for having me. And thank you, Justin, for doing another SGEM hop just after returning from an epic vacation. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to spend a morning talking nerdy with you, Ken. And I, and I look forward to continuing that conversation with the audience over the course of the next week. All right. Now, to finish off the show, Kirsten, we need the tagline, but you're from Harvard. So we need you to give it in a really thick New England accent. <laughs> Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. How do you like them apples? Say hi to your mother. <laughs> <laughs>